So if I said the words, I know this much is true, a certain generation of humans, including me, raising my hand, would immediately start humming along with the lyrics and the unforgettable melody from that iconic Spandau Ballet song simply titled True. As the songwriter and guitarist for the 80s music phenom Spandau Ballet, Gary Kemp wrote True along with 23 hit singles and the band's androgynous glam look, it really changed the culture of music in a way that wouldn't be truly understood for years. He later worked with everyone from Nelly to Lloyd to the Black Eyed Peas, wrote music that appeared on TV shows worldwide, including Spin City, The Simpsons, and Ugly Betty, as well as Hollywood blockbusters like The Wedding Singer, Charlie's Angels, Fifty First Dates, and Sky High. And when Spandau's opening run came to a close in the early 90s, well, Gary then followed a parallel muse into acting, appearing in the hit British gangster movie The Craze, and then in Hollywood movies like Bodyguard and Quentin Tarantino's Killing Zoe. He also made a theatrical debut, and he has been in the theater in London's West End production of Art. Gary recently, just a couple years back, began touring again with Saucerful of Secrets alongside Pink Floyd drummer Nick Mason and bassist Guy Pratt really rekindling a desire to be back in the studio writing and recording an album that he produced entirely and almost all remotely, originally at least, during the pandemic called In Solo, which is this deeply reflective look at his life, his love, and work. So excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Good Life Project is sponsored by LinkedIn Ads. So as a business-to-business marketer, your needs are unique. B2B buying cycles are long and your customers face incredibly complex decisions. So isn't it time you had a marketing platform built specifically for you? LinkedIn Ads empowers marketers with solutions tailored for B2B. Imagine having direct access to a billion professionals, including 180 million senior executives and 10 million C-level leaders with LinkedIn's powerful targeting tools built for B2B, you can drive serious results. 
LinkedIn ads generated two to five times higher return on ad spend than other social platforms in the technology space. We've actually tapped the power of LinkedIn ads a number of times ourselves, and the campaigns have been really successful. If you're ready to revolutionize your B2B marketing, try LinkedIn ads with a $100 credit on your next campaign. Terms and conditions apply. Go to linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject, or just click the link in the show notes. Terms and conditions apply. I'm sort of ogling the guitar that's sitting on your wall behind you right now, by the way. <laughs> yeah, that one's a nice one. That's fairly new in my collection that's yeah. a 63 335 with a bigsby on uh, mm. i'm not really i haven't played one of those since the early 80s but i decided i needed one and uh, that was that was a really nice one that came up but i know i'm yeah. normally a stratocaster or yeah normally yeah. Strat, you know I, as a, a former um kid of the 80s 70s and 80s um i remember having in high school this like early 70s bone colored strat that i used to play in like the local garage band sold it for a song and it's a guitar where i have this like enduring love affair and remembrance of <laughs> uh, i yeah i don't sell guitars is my is my um advice i still have the guitar that i wrote true and gold on and and then i have the the strat that i recorded those songs on which is a bone colored strat but it's 1979 it, it's not yours jonathan Nah, <laughs> I um, I uh, I still have, and I still play, and it's all over my album, and uh, and I still I play that with Nick Mason, and it's been in my life since I was twenty two, and I'm now sixty one. Yeah, no, you can definitely. There's something about that guitar, especially like th- that vintage right around there, sort of like the this the seventies. That was yeah. just really stunning. Is that actually? Now that I think about it, there's a solo on your new haunted, your new album that's in the haunted. Oh yeah, is that the guitar you were playing in that? Yeah, that's the strat. Right, yeah, that yeah. plays basically. I think that plays most of the solos on the album. I think there's one on the Les Paul, but um, you know, we we make so much association, don't we, with uh, with these old things. You know, there's a, a, a guitar I'm playing, a acoustic guitar that I play all the time, is a J two hundred from nineteen fifty seven. So that's two mm. years before I was born, and you know, you take custodianship of it or whatever. You know, it's not ownership, is it? And then you um. But you can somehow feel the resonance of the past coming through it. It's like that old bottle of wine, isn't it? You know, and the same with the Strat. I got a '57 Sky Blue Sonic Blue Strat, mm. which I bought in LA in '82. But it's uh, it's completely original. I play that on the video for Ahead of the Game. But it's um, again, you know, there's this, there's the something. What is it about that age? Because we're playing modern music, but we really like the idea of. Uh, having things with us that are older than us that uh, that help us speak. Yeah, I so agree with that. I, I sometimes wonder if it's that we have this yearning for a sense of lineage that I think is sort of getting fractured and, and lost a lot in the way that we live our lives and the pace that we tend to live them. And when we find something like that, it somehow reconnects us to that sensibility. It's not made of zeros and ones. Mm. You know, it's made of it's made of wood, and I, you know, there's this thing of you know, if it's I mean, Les, old Les Pauls are different because there's sort of one piece of wood, but a but a strat is two pieces of wood, and as it ages, they the the somehow these these two bits of timber start to resonate together, and I guess when I play a guitar, it's like other people hugging trees. <laughs> you know, I'm hugging the wood and a little bit of electricity that's in there, electronics that's in there, but it's the same feeling. 
Yeah, I completely agree. It's funny. We had um, Peter Frampton on a little while back and he was sharing the story of, you know, he was playing, he played this classic black Gibson that was uh, on, on the cover of Frampton Comes yeah, Alive. Yeah. And then that guitar, he thought, got lost in a plane crash. I That's think right. In South America. In Right, and then years later, it find it, he he discovers that it's actually alive and reasonably well, yeah. and finds his way back to him. Um, and it's like, you know, when when he plays that guitar for the first time, which I think was on stage at the Beacon in New York, it's like you know the guitar is actually the star of the show and not him. <laughs> yeah, and he was just also he's reconnecting to the greatest moment in his in his history to his pop, yeah. and. There's something in that, you know, there's something in the fact that that guitar I'm playing now on new music, you know, played on a record that's been played, you know, over five million times on American radio. You know, it's the same record. I'm somehow, you know, I might, it's interesting because a lot of my album is about looking back. It's about resonances. It's about versions of me in the past and how that relates to who I am now. But by carrying that guitar that, 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 that still has a direct connection, in a way, more direct to the past than I have, because every cell in my body has changed. You know, my voice doesn't sound, nothing sounds, really, am I still that person? This, I mean, philosophically, this is a whole interesting concept, you know. Oh, do these people, is there a moment? when that image of yourself, that person that you remember in various incarnations actually dies, you know, it, there's a line when it transforms from one thing, one being to another being. Um, I've been thinking about that a lot lately, you know, cause a lot of my life is kind of trapped that, you know, my, my sort of pomp as it were is caught in a bell jar, you know, which has probably eighties written on it, you know, yeah. <laughs> and, and that bell jar keeps being shown to me. I can't, I can't escape what's in it. If, you know, people talk about baggage. It's not baggage because baggage is locked up and closed. You can't see through it. So I envisage it as this sort of bell jar that keeps getting carried around with me aged between 20 and 30, you know, and, and, and is that, is that, how is that person, is that person influencing me still? Is it, is he, is he breathing inside of me or is he, is he completely gone and I only have some memories that are slightly sort of fabricated over the years? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting thing to revisit, right? Because there are parts of us that I think, you know, in, in hindsight, I'm a couple of years younger than you, I think, so we're similar enough in age. You know, you, you're, you start looking back and you're like, you know, there are moments or, or qualities of, of who you are that you almost, they seem alien to you. And then there are these other things where you're like, oh yeah, that's been that way since I was six. <laughs> Yeah. You know, and, and it will be that way until I take yeah. my last breath. But it's, it's, you know, if you look at, we can never understand evolution, can we? Because we look at, we look at animals changing and evolution changing. It changed so slowly. We don't quite see the change. And it's the same with us. You know, we know we've evolved. We know that we're not the same people we were when we were twenties, but we have no idea how that change has come about. You know, when did it happen? But there is a big leap when I see myself talking as a 20 year old, you know, and I'm thinking that's not, that just isn't me now or listen to my songs that I wrote. Yeah. I mean, it, it's gotta be interesting for you also, right? Because so much of your life, especially in that sort of like, you know, window that you describe as being in the bell jar was lived so publicly and, and so documented and so captured and so shared that for you, it's, I would imagine more so than the average person, it's less about sort of like remembering, you know, there's also, there's a metric ton 
of visual and, and sonic references that exist that you can sort of constantly keep revisiting. But also, yeah, I, and, and I completely agree, you know, and when I walk on stage, I'm probably still that 20 something in my mm. head, you know, it's a bit like, yeah. I still feel, I cycle. So when I get on a bike, I still feel like I'm 15, right? That's the feeling I have rushing through my body. And when I see a picture of myself or a film of myself doing it, I'm like, oh, come on, that's not the guy I thought I was. I thought I was much younger. Let's, let's just have a think about that a bit longer. So now all of us are archivists and all young kids are archivists. You know, I have a lot of pictures of me going back to a certain time. And obviously then I have all that video from Spandau Ballet period. But most people only have what's on their iPhone. That can go back quite a long time or whatever phone they use. Other phones are available. But then they maybe have some photographs. Older people have some photographs that were printed out, you know, down at the pharmacy, chemist, wherever you guys get your photos printed. And they can look through there and capture, capture. How must it have been before the the the, the f- photographic image go back a hundred or so years for human beings who never had anything to remind themselves of their of their past? I mean, my grandfather, when I grew up, I never saw a picture of him as, of him as a young man. He was always an old man. So there's, there's, I think it's a good thing to be able to to see your own evolution and your process through life. I think they're because you can see the jumping off points, you know, and you, you can see, I think I'm, okay, I may be putting on weight, but I think I'm getting better inside, you know. Um, there's a lot to be gained from this from this past. But also, there's a lot of times when I would imagine that people look back on old pictures of themselves as young people and feel a great sense of loss, of bereavement, you know, and that's maybe what shot the plastic surgery business through the roof, you know. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I think it can be right a, a bit of a double-edged sword, you know. But you know, you you brought up this really interesting reference too, which is you know if you if you go back three generations or or a, a little bit longer, you know, everything was passed on orally. You know, it's not that far back in our history when the vast majority of things, the primary way that we reference the past was through storytelling that was meticulously developed and then shared and passed on from generation to generation. But but also. In music, you know, a lot of those stories are told through rhythm and through sound and through collective storytelling. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a, there's a there was a guy called Cecil, Cecil Sharp here in the UK in the I guess he would have been I'm guessing around 1900, maybe even a bit earlier. I'm not sure. And there's a place here called Cecil Sharp House. He went around all of the farms and the fields and the workplaces, and he collated uh, English folk music. Maybe British folk music, but certainly what I know is English folk music. And and he got that, but literally by sitting down with old people and getting them to sing songs to him that no one had ever written down, but was really social history, you know, and, and suffrage and all of that sort of stuff. And, 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 and I think, you know, it has been, it was really popular, the, 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 the folk revival in 19... 19- 70, you know, with, the, with bands like um, Fairport Convention and people like that, you know, really took it up. Middle class people, I have to say, who were really obsessed with working class people from the past. <laughs> Didn't really want to know about working class people from the present. <laughs> uh, you know, pre-industrial revolution was favourite because that was a romantic kind of era. But nevertheless, you know, that really was the Instagram of its day, singing a song and passing it on to to the person that you're working with next in a field or to your child or someone else. You know, making those social interactions through music and, and, and word 
that was social media, wasn't it? Yeah. Albeit in a field of corn. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I mean, that was the way that, that, you know, we communicated. We shared shared experiences and we passed them on from person to person and from time to time. Um, it is interesting to think about that. We call it Homeric, don't we? Yeah. After Homer. Right. You know, cause ho- uh, the, because the, the Odyssey and the Iliad were, were all passed down verbally, never written down. Until I know, at some stage, they one person wrote them down, but it certainly wasn't Homer. But now, of course, it's we, you know. Okay, let's let's think a little bit more about stuff from the past and how it really infringes on our present. So, my generation of kids, I bought my first record in 1971. Never bought a record from the past, so I never bought a Beatles record as a teenager growing up, where music was really the dominant force in my life where it was getting under my skin where it was becoming the soundtrack of my evolution and everything that I hold dear now is from the 70s because that's the first time I did everything you know uh, that was important to me I only bought the records that were that were coming out so I bought bought McCartney's records I bought Lennon's records I bought Harrison's not the Beatles and occasionally I might step one step back you know so Bowie brings out Ziggy Stardust and I and they re-released Life on Mars and I bought Life on Mars but we reach a stage, probably in the 2000s, when everything starts to become available, where kids are now archivists. So I went and gave a talk today at my son's school to the music kids um, doing their sort of, you know, 16-year-olds doing their exams in music about songwriting. And all of them were fans of Floyd and Zeppelin and bands in the past. That's like me being fans of music, a fan of music from the 1930s, you know, which I've grown to hear about. No coward, maybe, but I'm not, you know, it wasn't on my radar, but they are archivists. And does that, the question is, does that weaken their sense of now and their sense of generation gap and their sense of forward motion and revolution and identity that they are forging? Does that weaken it? By having so much power up behind you, yeah, it, th- that is a fascinating question, right? And what comes to my mind immediately when you when you sort of pose that question is, my de- knee jerk response is no. Um, but but I want to I, I want I want to think on that a little bit because my sense is that you know what may be happening is that because we live in a society now, especially you know if you're Gen Z, you're just kind of coming up. Like you were born with technology tethered to you. Um, you've lived your entire life that way. You know, almost everything that you do on a moment-to-moment basis is being shared in some way, shape, or form through some sort of digital device. And I wonder if that impulse to reach back in time, to reconnect, you know, with the Zeppelins and the, you know, it is a yearning, is almost a sense that I feel too untethered from something that is feels real, connects me to a sense of, my own history of history writ large when I'm simply existing. I spend so much of my time in the moment in the digital ether, which also very often, you know, like tends to, to be fleeting and vanishes quickly. And I wonder if there's a, a deeper impulse that is a yearning to connect to something that feels more, more real in, in an odd way and more grounded. Like I'm, I get to tether myself to something that Analog. is, is rich. Yeah. Analog. I think that's possible. Yeah, I can see that. There's that we're looking back to a period of of sort of naivety in in their eyes when options were less 
And so the choices you made were more definitive. We would probably look back to the Romantic poets like Byron and Shelley and Wordsworth and Coleridge. And we, I can name four. But probably around that period, there were a lot of Romantic poets, right? All giving their romance out, you know, and their autobiographical pain into their poetry. But then it gets filtered down, doesn't it, into the sort of key key protagonists. And and we we still, you know, we still want to know about that. But it doesn't interfere with our music making. It doesn't interfere with rock music, you know, because it's funny how different periods of time, different medium has become sorry, I'm jumping around a bit here in my head. I'll try and tie it together. But different mediums give us the art form. It's the medium that makes the art form. So the printing press allowed for the first right. novels, allowed for poetry, allowed for us communication of the word other than the Homeric way we spoke about earlier. And then the canvas and the paint allowed us to express ourselves that way. You know, the novel was in the late 19th century was, was, the, was the big medium because it wasn't just the printing. It was the, it was the, you could make books very easily. You could print magazines, you know, and that was what people were buying. They were buying Dickens in installments. Then in, in the 1920s, it was celluloid and mm. film and people made a lot of film if you look at the money in the real money not you know what it what it was compared to gdp you know, the biggest era was definitely the 30s and 40s in the movies you know and then along comes vinyl and vinyl is made originally for for classical music so 20 minutes aside 20 minutes is about what it is for a movement in classical music right mm. so you can have Four movements, two pieces of vinyl. And pop music jumps onto that medium and creates the album. And in the 70s, the album became the biggest money spinner in music ever. That gets digitized and the, not only does the album cover fall apart, we now have the CD and we have the pamphlet that's unreadable to most people <laughs> with human eyes. <laughs> and digital. So what digital takes long streaming is it drops completely any artwork there's no package there's no ownership there's nothing to feel and touch and tactile social media comes along here's a new art form here's a new medium here's a new medium and i don't i is this what i'm saying what i'm getting round to is there was a period a golden age period of music where music was the key art form for the generation that was you know, in a revolution against the previous generation, if you like, mm. you know, and they, and it represented everything to them. It represented their politics and everything. I think my kids who are, you know, young and teenagers, they're not so interested in music. They, they you know, they like the odd bits here and that's, you know, there's some key players doing really well, make a lot of money. Generally it's the YouTubers and the social media guys that are somehow, or maybe it's, Digital art, you know, I think the medium that we are now holding in our hands on a day-to-day -day basis is where people want to put, put, create their art. And music struggles with it because, you know, when it was a piece of vinyl, it was two acts and they were limited mm. time. So you created the form uh, that was enjoyable. You know, you could sit down in one sitting and, and eat and see this album, you know, so... I don't know how we ended up on this particular route, but I think what I think what I was saying, yes, it's because of all those 
yes, they do have a weight of archive behind them. And maybe that's so dominant that it that out of this, teenage kids want to fight their way through it and come up with something that is theirs, that is that is different to anything that, that you know, is, is not just another album. Yeah. And, and at the same time, I don't disagree with any of that. At the same time, we see so many people sampling, you know, and, and taking, not just being inspired by or learning from the sounds, the feelings, the riffs, the licks, you know, the tones and melodies of the past, but literally feeling so compelled by them that rather than using them as inspiration to try and figure out like, what is my voice going to be? Which they still do, but they feel so compelled that there's something about these older sounds that they literally will lift them and drop them into their creative process now, very often with, with very little filtering or, or change. And it's almost like an attempt to not just a nod to what happened in the past, but, but a, a, a way of saying, I'm a part of this. I'm a part of this that happened then. I think you're right. I think it's also validation because there's there's a there's a, this is a ready-made song. This is a hit. It's part of their life. It's part of our life. It's part of the soundtrack. It's out there in folk culture, the ether. If it's a big song, you know, the publisher slash writer is given permission. Right. That's a bit of validation itself. But they're pulling some of the past into the present, and and I think it's it's quite exciting. It's a bit like sampling is a bit like when. Brach and Picasso were were making that art where they'd cut out a bit of a cigar box and then cut out a bit right. of a newspaper and they'd collage that onto the canvas. It, it's 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 very like that. There's some sort of I know this, but I don't know this. The juxtaposition is what makes this exciting. You 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 know you you people think they know that tune, but it's going to a different chord. There's something. Yeah, I think probably what I did as a writer when I was earlier in my you know. My, years ago before any of that was available you know you might do something okay i do what i did a song like true i said listening to marvin all night long mm. so i was taking the guy's name and i was stamping it into my own song and saying hey you know there's this this is this is my greater world these this is some of my influences and Please give me some validation because because I like a really cool guy called Marvin Gaye. You know, I suppose in a way that's like a kind of like a lyrical sample, if you like. It's a nod to the past. Yeah, right. I, I guess it's been going on. It's just been made a lot easier and maybe uh, more obvious. Like uh, the um, writer and illustrator Austin Kleon wrote a book called Steal Like an Artist, which um, was I think based originally on a Picasso um, quote. And uh, and we do that, you know. The, <laughs> Um, we, we, we look to the past to inform what we create now. Yeah. You've got Jasper Johns, you know, doing, uh, you know, sort of bastardizing the American flag, you know, and so, or, or Andy Warhol taking yeah, our Heinz Campbell tin. Soup and, yeah. Campbell soup. Yeah. Campbell soup. That's it. Sorry. Heinz is a bit too English. Uh, Campbell soup. And, um, in a way that's, that's sampling, right? In art. Yeah. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Good Life Project is sponsored by LinkedIn Ads. So as a business-to-business marketer, your needs are unique. B2B buying cycles are long and your customers face incredibly complex decisions. So isn't it time you had a marketing platform built specifically for you? LinkedIn Ads empowers marketers with solutions tailored for B2B. Imagine having direct access to a billion professionals, including 180 million senior executives and 10 million C-level leaders with LinkedIn's powerful targeting tools built for B2B, you can drive serious results. LinkedIn ads generated two to five times higher return on ad spend than other social platforms in the technology space. We've actually tapped the power of LinkedIn ads a number of times ourselves, and the campaigns have been really successful. If you're ready to revolutionize your B2B marketing, try LinkedIn ads with a $100 credit on your next campaign. Terms and conditions apply. Go to linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject or just click the link in the show notes. Terms and conditions apply. I mean, it's it's interesting, right? I'm, I'm thinking about sort of um, you also over time, you know, when you started out, it was my understanding is, I mean, before Spandau hits in sort of like the mid eighties, the early days of music for you were more punk driven than, um, sort of new romantic. Yeah. The Americans missed out on a big sort of chunk of what we were doing. What time kind of two albums, six hits in the UK and Europe were in a very slightly different style to the sort of blue eyed soul that you became familiar with and that broke us in America. So we we came out of a group of kids in London, in Soho, in the center of London, who felt the responsibility of, it's funny because we're talking about this, the past and the responsibility of the past. What we did know is this, that rock music so far, going back to about 1960, 58, 59, in the UK had always been about a place and a youth cult, which turns into a band and pop culture. And that was starting when maybe in, in this, there was a club called The Two Eyes where bands like The Shadows came out of in, in, in about 1960. And then, you know, then we know The Beatles in the Cavern. 
and we know the Rolling Stones and the Railway Tavern. And, uh, you know, later on, there's the psychedelia movement starts with Pink Floyd down at the UFO Club in Tottenham Court Road, the West End of London. Then that scene moves on and turns into the Middle Earth Club. And out of that comes Tyrannosaurus Rex, T-Rex, Bowie, Glam Rock. Punk happens. There's a club called the Roxy, which seems to be the heart of it. Everyone has to go there to be at this place to, you know. And then we felt by the late 70s, 1978, you know, we know it's going to be our turn soon. What are we <laughs> going to do as teenagers, you know? And the baton will get passed and we'll have to come up with something good because it's going to be 1980 any minute. In London, there was a guy called Steve Strange and his friend Ross Egan, and they started this little club up on a Tuesday night and it was called Bowie Night. And they were, they were first of all, it was at a place called Billy's, then it was at a place called right. Blitz, and they were all in the centre of London. And Tuesday night, because that's the worst night of the week for the club owner. And so we started going down there, and all the kids of that generation, they were first, their excitement was first pricked by glam rock. So our sort of benchmark was the theatre of glam rock, was dressing mm. up, was a kind of ambiguity sexually, was... Um, you know, guys in makeup was wild clothes, you know. So there was a lot of that going on in this club. And the music that's, that, that sort of found itself in the background in that club was electronica. So it was craft work and uh, bands sort of that Bowie had validated in Berlin, I suppose, but definitely a throbbing pulse that was slower than the normal conventional disco, you know. Mm -hmm. And I remember being in this little club on a Tuesday night with my guys who we'd had this little band going back to sort of 1976 when we first seen the Sex Pistols together and we created this band at school. We were a bit too young for punk. And we said, that's it. Let's go and buy a synthesizer. This is our turn. This is us. We've got to be the house band here because this is the next big scene. And we crawled up on that stage and we became the house band and we never sent tapes to record companies. You know, this club was pretty exclusive you could only get in if you made your own clothes. It was like that, you know. <laughs> it was nothing to do with having money for sure. And um, and 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 we became very successful in those first few couple of years as being a band that um, you know, was really hip and and playing you know st st dance stuff that was kind of you know uh, culty in a way, even though it was commercial and was getting in the charts here in the UK. And then I just had a moment where I thought, I can't be a cult band forever. I can't bow down to London scene forever. And what I really want to do is write some really classic songs. And I ended up writing a song called True and Gold. And, you know, and next thing I know, I'm, I'm playing True on Soul Train. And uh, the record is, is on the radio and in America. Yeah, I mean, to go through that, you know, and it's a story that I think we've all heard many times. It's sort of like, it's, it's heads down. You're doing the work, you're doing the work, you're showing up, showing up over and over and over. And it's... Um, one of my curiosities is, is, you know, whether it's in music, whether it's in art, whether it's in entrepreneurship, in business, in, in the world of startups, there tends to be this really interesting phenomenon where you're kind of going, you're getting slow traction, slow traction, slow traction, and maybe this is years in the making, and then something happens, and there's that hockey stick moment where it just goes straight up. My curiosity around that, I know this is going back a time, is, you know, like, the day before that happens, is there any understanding or sense that something huge, that you've done the work, you're on the precipice, and something really big is about to happen, or does it take you completely by surprise? Well, I think in my particular case, it was a bit like one of those really cheesy 
Elvis scripts or something, you know, where they try, the kids are trying to get the show on. The kids are trying to get the show on. And then a massive hiccup happens. And, you know, the guy with the cigar decides they're not going to, you know, the, the, yeah, the theater's yeah. going to close. And then suddenly out of the mire, they get it together and there's a euphoric ending, right? And it was a bit like that. Our second album, which was a classic, difficult second album, which had a, some hits on at the beginning, had, had slightly struggled towards the end. And we had a, our first flop, in a way. We quickly tried to reinvent our, our, or our luck, if you like, by going to Trevor Horn and getting a, a fantastic re-recording of one of the songs that was on the second album, a track called Instinction, which bounced us back into the charts. But boy, yeah, the, I then knew as the songwriter in the band that I had, a, I had to dig deep now. So what was it that was going, I was, that was going to give me something that was going to make our lives, you know, bigger, more exciting. I don't think I really thought I want to write a song for America. I, I didn't find that. I think I sort of, I found truth. Okay. Before then, a lot of stuff I was writing about was just mood music, you know, kind of fantasy landscapes that we all sort of wrote about in the eighties, you know, that make, don't really have any substance. Think about true as a song. What made that was, it was all real. So I, I had a platonic falling in love relationship with a female artist out there, right? We had this exchange. She gave me a, a book by Nabokov, Lolita. So that was part of the thing that I was reading, feeling the energy coming out of that book because it was a gift and there were some beautiful lines in there that, you know, when you're in love, you take all these things take on a more powerful resonance. And she's, she's listening to Al Green and Marvin Gaye. And I'm... I'm hearing that song that's going in some of that. I'm so in love with you. That's getting into my system. And then I, I start to write this song. And well, I, I, I'm listening to Let It Be on the TV. And there's John Lennon singing Dig a Pony. Dig a Pony. Oh, I love the way he snakes that little eye around. I'll try and do a song with that feel. So I come up with her. Ah, 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 ah. And in it, it says, listening to Marvin all night long. In it, it says two lines that are from Lolita's Nabokov. With a thrill in my head and a pill on my tongue is a kind of twist on a line that's in there. Take your seaside arms. Nabokov describes his heroine as having seaside limbs. Mm. And I really love that image. I know that Lolita has its, all of its own issues now <laughs> surrounding a girl underage, but let's just put that to one side for a minute because that wasn't what it was about. And the song starts to be about the difficulty of being honest to someone when you're writing a song. I can't admit that it's about you. Why do I find it hard to write the next line when I want the truth to be said? So what I think made that song special was its Honesty. It was the first song I'd ever written from inside my heart mm. and and was genuine about genuinely about me and something that I'd really experienced. And as I went on through life, I realized, I realized now, finally, that I've experienced enough of all the seven stories to not have to make anything up anymore. <laughs> that I can exaggerate <laughs> on pretty much most things that have happened to me. But anyway, I think Jonathan, what it is is that feeling 
of honesty was the difference and is what made that record and that song so much more successful than anything I'd ever written before. Yeah, and it's so interesting that you you reference that out because you've got this song that comes out, like you said, it's the first truly true thing that you, you wrote at the level of honesty. And at the same time, it's being delivered in this sort of container of almost this, you know, like constructed identity of both you as an individual and the members of the band, the entire sort of like scene of music, trying to sort of like wake up every day and live into something, live into some ethos that you want the world to embrace that feels very, very loud, very in your face. And in that comes this song, which is quiet, which is real, you know, which is vulnerable. I almost yeah. feel like it's, it's that you know, the contrast there that really added to something too. I get it. You know, and I I think, I mean, people maybe d don't hear it in the same way now. I think when it first came out, it had a, it had a uniqueness about it for a, for a white band, you know, to be doing. It's interesting what you said about the loudness because it was a loud period. There's MTV busting into your living room and, and in garish colors and, you know, we are putting as much weight upon our visuals as we are upon our audio, as upon, as upon our philosophies, which are noisy, and our gameplay, which is raucous. If I'd written that song, you know, in Laurel Canyon in, in 1971, <laughs> 70, I would have just... A folk song and a guitar. <laughs> it would have been a folk song and a guitar. Right. And probably it would be, you know, it would it would feel more important in a way. But this was a band. This was a band of working class kids who were just you know, all with their own voices, all with their own importance. You know, here's Tony singing it in his way and his, you know, Mark, you know, everyone's putting their, I don't think I'd ever explain to them what the song meant to me like I did to you a few minutes mm -hmm. ago. When I played this song to them, it was another song, you know. And I think that's the beauty of songwriting. Well, is it the beauty? I think it is. I think a lot of people who write, I write songs, struggle with communication in other forms, in the everyday form, in ordinary words. And I certainly was struggling with that at that time. Couldn't really. I mean, I wrote that while I was at home, still living in my parents' public housing, you know. But I think in a song, sometimes we can just deliver something that is so honest about who we are and what we feel and believe in that we would shy away from in normal everyday speech. Yeah. I think that's true to say. And I, 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 I had the other thing that even removed it further. I had someone else singing it. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah. So you've got somebody interpreting, um, like it's there, you know, in, in harmony, of course, you know, in concert with you, but, but it's, yeah, it's not just you anymore. Um, it's interesting in the, um, so in the early eighties, I was a club DJ and, uh, in, in you know, very past life for me. So, you know, I knew the beats permitted of, you know, like a couple thousand songs and mm. you know, like that, that, you know, true was always in the mix and young know, gold also. And, and I remember I put true on like when it was that moment in the evening where you're pretty deep into it and things have been like really high for a long time and you need to bring people into this sort of like deep moment of resonance, um, and reflection, but without telling them to like go there you know, and you would bring this on. And I, and I, I can remember to this day, you know, like the, the energy, like sort of like that would blanket the floor um, for this moment of time and almost give people a reprieve to get back in touch with themselves. And then, you know, I, I knew we were going to take them back up and, and out of that. So it's funny when I think of the song, I have this, 
other mm-hmm. layer of how, how would I quote use this in the context of managing the social dynamic of like 500 people on a dance floor. You don't want to drop it in the wrong place though. <laughs> no, and trust me, I did plenty of that and got a lot of really bad stares from, yeah. from a lot of people. I mean, it, it's tough when you write a song like that. I have to say, not that I'm suffering here in my tough house anymore. It's been a great gift to me, that song. But it's tough as a kid when you've got to write the next one and the next one. And nah. You know, we had our ups and downs in America. You know, in Europe, it kept on going for quite a while until 1990 when we split up. But um, I think still think the best songs that I wrote were, were the ones that were much more personal. Uh, even if I would, you know, there's a song called Through the Barricades that I right. that I wrote, which was about the sort of, it was about a kind of Catholic Protestant relationship in Belfast. It never, ever mentions any of those three words that I just said. Um, so it can be taken in all different kinds of way, like a Romo, Romeo and Juliet. I mean, we actually played it in Berlin the year the war, the month the war came hmm. down and it really resonated then. And that was a song that I wrote out of, you know, visiting Belfast and being taken by a friend that I knew whose brother had been killed in the Troubles. And he talk, took me along one of the main roads down towards his brother's grave. And as I was walking th- through there, I could see the barricades that lined all the different streets to stop one main street getting to the other main street, you know, because they, they were, that was the Catholic Protestant divide. There were tanks in the city, you know, I mean, it was, it was extraordinary. I couldn't believe it was the UK. And so I ended up writing this sort of lyric first, really, as opposed to a lot of the other songs that I'd written for Spano, which tend to be, you know, hook first. And I think that was why that song has been so powerful as well, because there's a, you know, even though it's not about me, there's a sense of honesty in it. I hope it's not mawkish, it's not clawing, you know, it, I think it's, it's, it's storytelling to a large extent, you know, and I think those, those songs, you know, they, they, they're, they're the two songs, you know, that I think work the best for me and they're the most honest that I wrote when I was with Spandau. Yeah. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Late bloomers tend to have more curiosity. They tend to have more resilience. There are stories and mythology that this country has woven around black men. What if everything we've been taught is just all wrong? 
what's worth more than this fear right now. And that rising after failure is part of the glory of being a human being. Listen to deeply personal, insightful, and thought-provoking stories from the world's leading thinkers and doers. Listen and subscribe to The Unmistakable Creative wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. You know, it's, it's interesting to think back and sort of like um, try and reflect on how how you felt and what they meant to you. And and also, I, I, I would imagine, you know, the feeling that you had when you when you write, you know, songs like that stays the same, but the way that you look at them in hindsight um, changes is the same way that we we'll, we look at our lives. You know, so it was it's interesting timing that you you really that you and Spandau really sort of like exploded because it feels like it wasn't that long until the tides of what people wanted in music. You know, the pendulum swung radically back in the other direction, like not just back to rock, but to, like straight into grunge. In the UK, it went into the second summer of love. So it went mm. into disc, it went into DJ right, music. Right, right. It went yeah, into yeah. acid house and it went right. into house music and dance and sort of, you know, faceless kind of music really. But it was, it became about the kids on the dance floor. They became the most important thing. You know, that youth, particular youth culture was very dominated by one particular drug and that, you know, did not give people any ability to want to watch a band, right? Yep. <laughs> they were just happy staring at the lights. But that became really popular. You're right. In America, in the early 90s, it did swing to grunge. And that that dialectic is, is common in all of all pop culture, all art. You know, you go from one extreme to the other. Right. That's what... That's kind of what people do. We took on grunge for a bit, but we had what over here get, got called Britpop with bands like Oasis and, and right, Blur, yeah. which was which again was very was the opposite of what we had done because it was lad culture. It was quite blokish. No one was wearing makeup, you know. No one was dressing in a flamboyant theatrical way like the eighties. It was the absolute opposite, and people in anoraks. So you yeah you you, you get that. I think you get that dialectic in 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 everything. It's it's normal. A generation grows up and thinks, "Well, I don't want to be associated with the my older brothers or the the guys who did it ten years ago." And so, um, but then you, yeah, I I I think you know it's very hard. If you, what you have to do is have an image that's it's constantly neutral, that's outside of all of all of the sort of fashion, if you like. So a band like you too really weren't embedded with anybody. Right. You know, they, yeah. they, they sort, of, sort of stood alone in a way in a more traditionalist rock and roll form. Probably more suited to the 70s, which is where they came from. They were a 70s post-punk group. And so they they could ride the storm of change. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting you brought them up, you know, having having seen them over a period of decades and really seeing how much has stayed the same with them, even though, you know, like their concerts are much bigger extravaganzas and mass technology, but fundamentally, you know, um, it's, it's so much sounds 
really similar. It's tethered to, you know, like the, the eighties, um, when they first really exploded onto the scene. But, great you know, songs as well. Great songs and commitment. Fantastic. Yeah. You know, commitment. I mean, I mean Bono yeah. has this great skill of always sounding truthful, you mm. know, which is what we went back to earlier. Yeah. How to sell a song. You sell a song by it being connected to the truth within you. So, you know, I briefly mentioned how nowadays and what was one of the great sort of artistic unblocking for me. And on this album that we haven't yet mentioned, Jonathan, I, <laughs> but we might. We may. Jump into it. We might. I wrote this lyric first. I, I, I felt that I, I didn't have to make anything up anymore. And so when I sing it, I'm di directly communicating my personal truth, even if it's storytelling, even if it's in third person singular and it's not directly about me there's elements of it that are about me. Mm. So I'm directing that di personally from my heart to your ear, right? To the, to any listener's ear. I think there's something to be had about that. There's, there's no third person that's going to come in, you know, middleman, if you like, that's going to come in. I think when you are an actor playing a part, you always look for the truth in the character you're playing. So you're saying, well, what bits of this do I know about? Who can I relate to in this? And what in common do I have? So I'll find that inside my memory. And when I deliver those lines, which I didn't write, they will have bits of my reality in it. And that is the winning acting device, right? You know. And I think, you know, someone like Bono, so good at delivering a song as though he's giving you the news about his life. It's all autobiographical. It's so true. What he's saying is a feeling that not only does he feel profoundly, but you must do too. And if you don't, you will listen to me and you soon will. You know, I mean, that's slightly evangelical, I know. But, but, I, but I think that's the skill of the great performer. You know, sometimes it's not, it, it's, it's real, like, a, like a, someone like Nick who wrote Five Leaves. You know, sometimes it's genuine. It's heartfelt. It's, it's you know, bedwetting. Other times it's, the guy's good at tricking you, but he's really good <laughs> at that delivery. But it, nevertheless, it's it's always got to have that honesty in it. Yeah, that's why also tune is so screwed up. I mean, because yeah. it could just flatten out everything. I, I, and I've had this conversation with so many people now, and I, I I so agree. I don't want to hear perfection. I don't want to see perfection. You know, because I it it strips like the thing that is so beautiful. You know, in Great Gig in the Sky with Floyd, when you hear that voice or the thing that you know and. In, in your guitar, Dave Gilmore's guitar on Comfortably Numb, like the, if you put that thing through like syncopation and auto-tune and like everything, it's the, the thing that makes it like that, that slight variations, the Nuance. deviations, the humanity in it. I, mm. I feel like that's what we connect to. And when we strip that out, I really wonder what we're losing. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm sure the wow and flutter of reality is, is no longer with us anymore, is it? You know, I, d I don't want to sound like. Look, can we sound like a couple of old blokes playing dominoes outside a <laughs> well, bar? We, we, we kind of <laughs> are to a certain extent. <laughs> it depends it's on part, your listenership. It's part of us, right, right, right. Uh, no, but, but agreed. Like we're not, we're not Luddites, and like technology is awesome, and there's amazing things happening, and yet, you know, th there is this this desire right now to connect to something real and true, um, and human, and. Which also, I think, really speaks powerfully to your, your new album. Oh, finally. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go there. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, you, you come out with an album. Your first solo album was 25-ish years ago, right? Yeah, this is my, my difficult second album. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, w which, you know, obviously begs the question, you know, like, right. why, why this and why not? Okay. 
and I probably need to fill the gaps in really just yeah, a briefly, little bit. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> um, is so when Spandau finished, you know, I, I, I did a big movie here over here called the craze. And then I, I went to Hollywood. I did the bodyguard. I did a Tarantino production called killing Zoe. I did some TV shows in America, Gary, Larry Sanders. And I did some other movies in Europe. That was where I was going. I was just going to make some music. And then my marriage broke up. And the first thing I went for was my guitar, wrote a bunch of songs, made an album. It really didn't change the world at all because Britpop was happening over here and no one wanted an 80s man. I spent a lot of time building a family again and looking after my young kid. I think that was really important for me. You know, my I had him the majority of the time and and I wanted to build, bring him up in in London and give him a lot of time so I wasn't trying to find work that much I was doing I've done I've always done acting I've always done a lot of theater here in, in the UK do serious plays as well a couple of musicals but yeah that sort of thing I tried to write some musicals even but then I there was, there's been a lot of water under the bridge with Spandau Ballet there was a court case that went on in 99 all of it can be seen in our documentary Soul Boys of the Western World um, we got back together you know I've, I've sort of been the um curator of, of it as well because you know I put make sure all the box sets are really nice when they come together and when we do get back together and we have done even through our difficulties on, on a few occasions there's always some new music to be written but that past has really been present in my you know it comes to me all the time so I'd be often writing songs thinking oh that's kind of I'll put that to the side for Spandau maybe that'll be for them finding it really hard to write for myself Happy to be the act, do acting. I div, I also have had three more boys since then. I've got four boys. I've got a, a marriage that I try and, you know, that's been brilliant for the last 20 years. And then I get invited up to do Nick Mason from Pink Floyd and to go on tour with him and do the early Pink Floyd stuff. We've, you know, we've done a big American tour. There's going to be another one next year. And this is the first time in my life I'm playing other people's music. Mm. Well, I like it though, because I'm liberated. I can play my guitar. I can sing lead for the first time. And play much more guitar. And um, and I feel confidence of growing. But I guess playing that other people's music then just made me want to write my own more. So I found during the traveling on that album, I was, I was suddenly writing lyrics. And I was writing a lot of lyrics. And some of those lyrics, I noticed, were about me at my age. I was 60. I was weaker than I've I was as a, as a strong, you know, as a young man, I was not as sharp of eye, not as fleet of foot, you know, and I started writing songs about dealing with that as a, as a, you know, one's called, I remember you. Another one was called, I am the past. And one's called waiting for the band. And they were about, you know, some of them look back and say, you know, how, how, how do you live with me? How, why do you love me? You didn't know me when I was this super guy, you know, when I was this, this fast kid, you know, what do you, what do you see in me now? I am the past is kind of from the point of view in my head of a gunslinger who was no longer a sh the sharpshooter he used to be. And he's, he's with a younger woman. And how does she feel about that? And waiting for the band was also about the past. And it was, it was about me. My 13 year old self came into my head and, this kid had just discovered music who was dressing up and painting his face and running around the backs of theatres looking for his heroes. And, you know, that feeling of great anticipation when you're waiting for the band. That's where I decided to want to set the moment of this song. It was that moment before they come on stage. It was that moment when, you know, you, the, you'd know the hairs on your back of your neck are mm -hmm. going to rise at any minute. And, but the song resol resolves itself by saying, I'm still there. I've still got that young man in me. 
I'm still waiting for the band. I'm still full of enthusiasm for music to come along and change my life and uplift me. In a way, it's like waiting for the second coming, you know, but it's still in me, but it's music based. And, and I think that was a good moment because we spoke right at the beginning of this conversation about what is that connection between our younger, fitter selves when we're at the apex of our lives and careers you know, how, how do they relate to you now? And I went back a bit further and I found my first flush of excitement and I realized I still contained it. Mm. So that's why I felt I got to keep going. This is an album. I, I, I need to write more and uh, not all about that subject, but they were all about how I see the world right now and where, where what my place is in it and how you know, social media is, is, is stressful for people. We all look for our validations on our phones for likes and yet, you know, and we can walk through a city feeling incredibly lonely. So there was some songs like in solo that were about that. And I don't know why, but that, that this felt like I needed to finish it. And then when Nick Mason's tour got canceled because of the pandemic, right, right. I had, I had, that was it. I was, it was a race against time. It was a race before everything went back to normal. I had to finish this record. Yeah, so you had already been writing, so a lot of this stuff was, you know, like from the songwriting side, it sounds like it, it was it was in place, but then it's like, well, especially then, because it's like, okay, so the world as we know it, the way I would normally take this and then develop it and produce it and record it, it is it, it can happen, and yet simultaneously, you know, a fire's been lit in you, you know, yeah. and there's something is starting, like the kindling is starting to like turn into like a, a real fire, and you're like, yeah. this, this can't stay inside of me. This has to get out. So, I mean, you want, you end up basically recording this whole thing from what I understand almost entirely remotely. There, yes. Yeah. I did get a chance to replace a lot of stuff once okay. the studios opened so I could replace the, you know, the, the fake orchestra with the real orchestras. I could get in the room with yeah. a couple of people, but a lot of the guys who play on this, the drummers like Roger Taylor and Ash Sohn and bass players, there was a lot of communication between me and my co-producer remotely. Yes, we did it all remotely. You know, I just, you know, I, I was sending demos to people and uh, then they would send me back the drum parts or the bass parts and I'd filter that in. Do you know what? I, you know, we spoke earlier about how art comes out of the medium. It comes out mm. of the the parameters and the constraints and the the edge of the frame. And because the pandemic created a lot of limitations that became so much easier for me to to drive down. I think what would have happened if it if in in a, in the normal state of affairs is as I would have gone on tour, I would, the album would have slightly got put back. I would have looked for some time in a studio. Oh, you can't get the time this week. You know, I mean, is Roger Taylor free that week? No, he's not free. And gradually put this album together in a kind of ad hoc way like that. But I think a lot of artists work like this, you know, if they've got constraints and they've got, you know, an area marked out that they have to work in and a time and disciplines, then, and then I think it's, it's better for your creative energy. And it's a bit, you know, this is the problem with computers music at the moment for me. It's, it's so many options. If there was just a real piano yeah. and a whirly and a Hammond and a synth here, just a little normal synth, not one that's connected to a million sounds. And a drummer and a bass player, you know, you could get this song together quickly. But it's when you're we're, we're overwhelmed by choice that we're not quite sure. And, you know, I can put a song up on a demo and I can make it sound like an indie band within seconds. I can make it sound like it's <laughs> done by an orchestra within seconds, right. you know, or, or, or it's played by a yes, you know. And so who am I? 
I've got too many choices, too many people in the room. So, but I think, I think the way the, this album developed was uh, the limitations definitely helped. Yeah, I love that. And, you know, the notion that constraint breeds creativity, I'm, I'm completely on board with. Um, yeah, I think about Jack White sometimes, like how he's trying to strip it down to the absolute, as basic as you can get it, and then see how wildly out of the box and creative can you get with the simplest possible tools available. Well, the one thing I've, I'm always, I've, I've always done, I prefer, is, is I always have a song finished before it ever goes to demos. So, mm, you know, oh, it, it's interesting. It, it's finished on guitar or piano. You could, I could sit there and I could sing you it. Got it. And it would be good enough like that. But it, you know, let's try and make it better with, with some other instruments and more stuff, a harmonization. But, um, yeah, no, I don't, I don't think it's healthy to, you know, I guess that's what I'd be like if I wrote a novel. I'd probably wouldn't just start and see where stream of consciousness took me. I, I'm not that kind of an artist. Yeah. I know some people who write that way and I'm always a, a bit awestruck by it because that is not the way my brain works either. Well, um, Pinter wrote that way. Harold Pinter. Oh, you no know kidding. His work? I didn't know that. Yeah. You know, so Harold would have just have a room and then he, who was coming, who was going to come into this room and someone mm. would come in and then a conversation, something would happen and someone else would come into the room and he never knew how it was going to resolve. He was working in a much more abstract sense though, in a way he wasn't, he wasn't interested in story arc. He was interested in just friction. And all you need for friction is two people. Yeah, no, it's it's fascinating how different people respond differently to um, constraints and possibilities. Um, you, it's it's interesting also. You you wrap this album. You wrap in solo with the song. Um, I think "Our Light" is the last song in it, which, which right. is an interesting song to sort of like close things off with. And I was curious about that. Well, um, the song before it is connected to the opening song on the album. Yeah, so the, the haunted and, and in solo, right? And in solo, are kind of connected. Right. They're about a story of a couple. And what happens to them, you know, we, we feel their separation at the beginning and, but it's a, that's a song about a u universal song about a lot of city dwellers who, who struggle with communication even more so when they're living paradoxically in a city. Haunted is their story carrying on really. And it's, it's about the guilty building. It's, it starts off about the house that, you know, it's that, it's like those, you know, documentaries where we, we have a camera outside the house this house is guilty you know, and it's about the house they, that they that they had a lot of fun in and loving and then gets kind of you know the heart ripped out of it all of this i've been through all of this is me you know i've been through those divorces and all of that the connecting thought with those two uh, songs as well was funnily enough some art that i'd been into at that time and you know i was getting a lot of visual references from other places I, I built these two songs they were the bookends of the album and i just thought i don't want to end that album mm -hmm. on that down note i want to end it on a positive way and i wrote a love song about the power of my love with my wife you know that's fair enough isn't it that's not too icky uh, uh called our light and it begins with our first date it begins with our date when i when i took her rather presumptuously because she's jewish to an even song <laughs> in, a, in Christ in Ch King's Chapel up in uh, Cambridge to listen to choir boys singing. I thought it was exquisite. I'm an atheist. She's a Jew. And it's like, why not? Let's just go in and enjoy it. <laughs> the perfect first date. <laughs> and, um, and it's, it's about that moment in the first verse. And, and it ends rather strangely with me leaving the earth and her being there to say goodbye. And I thought, that's bizarre. I've just written a song that begins on our first date and ends with me 
dying, right? But it's not done in a morbid way. It's done in a really uplifting way. And, you know, she's quite a few years younger than me, and I'm presuming and hoping that she will be, you know, I, she, I'll be first, right? So, I don't know. This, this song seemed to me, even though I haven't described it perfectly, as being very positive and uplifting and about the power of love and all of those things that we want to hear about finally. And so I just I, w- I thought I'd rather resolve the album that way than than um, than on a downbeat. Yeah, I I love that context because you know it, it's clear that that first song that in still on the haunted were were these bookends, and then I was in my mind I'm like, what is this other song doing here after it, and why is it there? And that so that context is actually like um, that's kind of fascinating. There's, it's a kind of emotional encore, if you like. You know, yeah, it's, it's yeah. Uh, let's come back and have a. You know, let's let's. I don't. Want, I don't want you going to get your ice creams in that bad mood. Okay. There's <laughs> <laughs> uh, a little something to send you off with a smile on your but face. But at the same time, it was impossible to put it anywhere else because there was yeah. such an uplifting resolution at the end when it when it you know resolving into that nice uh, major chord at the end that I just I couldn't find anything to follow it by. Mm. Nah, that's the perfect way to wrap yeah. it. Um, and and it feels like a good place for us to come full circle in our conversation as well. So. Hanging out here in this uh, international container, Good Life Project, if I offer up the phrase, to live a good life, what comes up? I am really into walking in the f- on the hills. I've always been into that. I've always been into the idea of feeling really small in a huge, timeless environment like that. And I'm walking with my my four boys. You know, I think... Being a dad is the most important thing I do. It's not being a musician. It's the most important creative thing I do. I'm trying to create decent human beings. I don't succeed every day (laughs) in doing it well. I sometimes fall foul of my emotions uh, when they're misbehaving. But that's all part of it. I'm trying to set examples. I think you really need to spend more time as much time as you can with the people you love so my answer to you isn't it's making music because it kind of isn't for me the good life for me is is family and spreading the right information to the generation below me so that hopefully they can go on and do better still i'm not making any of that up i absolutely 100 percent believe that i i put aside work endlessly to be with my kids and to be with my wife and to do all of those things so um, occasionally like to be on my own, I have to say, you know, and I, when I write, I write alone. I don't write with anybody else. And I, and I, I admit that it always takes me back to being 11 as a kid and, and realizing that I could walk into a room on my own. I could write a song and I could walk out and I had something more about me. But certainly it's, it's got to do with, uh, you know, spreading love in my family, I suppose. Hmm. That was beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, before you leave, if you love this episode, Safe Bet, you will also love the conversations we had with music icon Ben Folds about music, creativity, and the profound power of nonconformity, even at a young age. You'll find a link to Ben's episode in the show notes. And even if you don't listen now, be sure to click and download so it's ready to play when you're on the go. And of course, if you haven't already done so, be sure to follow Good Life Project in your favorite listening app so you'll never miss an episode. And then share the Good Life Project love with friends because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, 
That's when real change takes hold. See you next time.